Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast produced by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. We're in an unprecedented time with the COVID-19 pandemic spreading across the world. For the rest of this season, we are dedicating our podcast to presenting the facts about the virus and honoring the healthcare heroes and organizations that are making a difference in our community. He oversees 12 universities and three higher education centers across the state of Maryland. Now, Dr. Jay Perman is leading the university system of Maryland through an historic pandemic that could change the way we look at higher education in the future. Well, Dr. Perman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure to be with you. I really want to start right away with what is the status of schools right now that make up the university system of Maryland? I know schools went to online learning in March. Do you have students on campus right now? How is online learning going? Just what's the update right now? Well, we like to use the term distance education, Megan. Mm -hmm. Most of it is online, but there are also situations where in other fashion, we're continuing to teach at a distance, and we're going to teach out the semester that way. We've had to do it very quickly. Uh, Our institutions have a fair amount of experience with online education, but we would have preferred to do this in a much more gradual, better planned environment. Uh, So much of what we've had to do has uh, required speed. That said, What I'm hearing from faculty and students is that for the most part, it's gone very well. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. And at the same time, we've learned a great deal. I think online education is always going to be a part of what we offer Mm -hmm. to students. And uh, I suspect that if we are all fortunate enough to get back in some fashion to campus next fall, we're going to continue to have a hybrid situation with on-campus education buttressed by online education. Some of our institutions, as you know, uh, do online period, Mm -hmm. uh, like our University of Maryland Global Campus, and uh, they are just continuing apace. What is the plan for graduations? I know we're coming up upon graduation season. Will they be virtual? Will they be delayed? Well, yes and yes. Uh, You know, I feel so badly for the students and their families. We all know what it was like to look forward to our graduation, march across the stage to take those pictures. And this year's graduates will not have the same opportunity, the same privilege. It's a tremendous takeaway. Uh, It's a tremendous part of the sacrifice that we're all making each in our own way. Uh, And look, we feel badly about that. That said, several of the institutions are conducting a virtual graduation Mm -hmm. uh, with speakers, names being called. Some of those institutions will also plan to have an in-person graduation when it's possible to do that on campus, for example, later in the year. And hopefully many of our graduates will come back for that. And then some of our institutions, because their students have told them they would prefer it, are simply waiting for Mm -hmm. the time that they can have a delayed ceremony on campus. Mm -hmm. 
You have such an incredibly interesting background to be at the helm of the University System of Maryland right now, given that you're both a medical doctor and the chancellor. Has that helped you with your decision-making when it came to COVID-19? Well, I'm smiling, Megan, because, you know, we could all say, weren't we brilliant? How could (laughs) this have been better planned? Dumb luck, uh, isn't it? And you're too polite, but also, I think, embedded in your question, and of course, it's been asked of me when people want to be frank, what in the world is a physician doing, (laughs) running a large system of higher education? So all of that is pertinent to your question. Yes, to the extent that I understand the healthcare side of this, the medical side of this, it's probably an advantage now if we need to be in this pickle that we're all in. But I think the more profound part of the question is, why are you doing this? Uh, Even if we didn't have COVID-19, and as trite as the answer might be, I have been in higher education all my life because I've been in academic medicine. Academic medicine means classically that a physician has elected to be part of a system of higher education, conduct research, teach, and take care of patients. And that has been my privilege my entire career. As I've evolved in it, I've developed a passion for, frankly, making sure that I do my part so that all who want higher education will have the same privileges, the same opportunities that were afforded to me. Mm-hmm. And when people have asked me, what are you going to do, as they did ask me, <laughs> what are you going to do when you step down from being the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore? I've always almost reflexly said, I want to do something to make sure that whether it's a student coming out of high school, all the way to somebody in the workforce that wants to finish their college degree or develop a new career, I want to do something to make it easier for them to accomplish their dreams. And aren't I fortunate to have this opportunity? Mm -hmm. And you touched a little bit upon the medical and research side. You've established a task force and are calling the University System of Maryland an ally in the fight against COVID-19. And there are, you know, really four key ways the system's doing that, um, One, I guess the really tough one is medical with vaccine production and increased testing. Can you talk to me about how the university system on the medical side is really helping the entire country kind of navigate through this? Well, I would say even uh, helping the entire world. Uh, I'm very proud of what's going on at the University of Maryland, Baltimore and our University of Maryland School of Medicine. They are on the forefront of vaccine development. Mm -hmm. They are in the forefront of studying approaches to treating patients once ill with COVID-19. So groundbreaking research, terribly necessary to get all of us out of this dilemma. And uh, we're so proud to be a part of this. But it's not just the medical side. Uh, We have extraordinary engineering capability. I'm thinking about the work at College Park, work at 
the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, to deal with uh, some of the other aspects that we need for this pandemic and regrettably the likely pandemics that may be in our future. I hope not, but possibly uh, simple ventilators, better ways to create the products that kill viruses, the ability to open doors without touching the handles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in this fight in so many different ways. And then I think about our social scientists and the policies and procedures that need to be developed in order to act efficiently as a society and thoughtfully as a society in dealing with our behaviors when these things happen. So, uh, yes, we are not just reacting to what has happened to our educational model. We are actually fighting the fight. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting, too, because you have such a strong um, computer and data science uh, research sector that uh, they're really helping track the spread of this, which is something that's so important right now. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, several efforts that are involved with uh, knowing to what degree the American population is social distancing. I know it sounds like Big Brother, and obviously there's no personal identification here. But uh, with that kind of capability, we can provide the kind of information, as long as people use the information, to plan our further response to this pandemic. The Pratt Library is always here for you. Librarians are available for live web chats through our Ask Us Now platform. Get help with research, homework, tech problems, and accurate information on the COVID-19 pandemic. Just log on to prattlibrary.org. The flip side of this pandemic, one of the other things that is creating so much hardship is the financial hit that industries are taking across the board, specifically higher education. I mean, you've said the system will finish the school year up to $240 million behind. What kind of impact could that potentially have? Well, uh, we're working through that right now. And, you know, the $240 million impact is the impact that we have measured simply to get through the end of this semester. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're thinking ahead to what this is going to mean going forward. And we're going to need to be smart about deploying our resources. But as I've said over and over, as we think through what we need to do to manage in a constrained fiscal environment, Mm -hmm. everybody needs to keep in mind that this large public higher education system is part of the recovery of the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to say appropriately, one needs to manage within one's means, but that needs to be balanced by the fact that to the extent that one continues with a robust employment, robust workforce, we have 40,000 people who work across the university system of Maryland. To the extent that we get our students back, to their communities. They in turn become very important customers in the local economy. Mm -hmm. So this is the balance that uh, we need to uh, keep in mind, work with our state leaders, work with our communities to say, ah, the USM is an economic engine. And uh, that becomes terribly important to the recovery. We don't wanna just pull in our horns. Mm 
Well, I was going to, just on that same vein, I was going to say higher education is really big business in Maryland because you guys are one of the largest employers in the entire state. So there is a real ripple effect in what happens in just your individual budgets for your schools. Absolutely. And we need to be very mindful of that. Beyond that, to the extent, Megan, that we have a very robust research enterprise, and by that I mean that our system institutions pull in almost $1.5 billion a year from external sources in order to conduct research that improves the human condition. At the same time, most of those dollars are dollars that go into the payroll. So to the extent that we have a vibrant research enterprise, apart from the good it does in providing new information, it puts money into people's pockets to help in bolstering the economy. Yeah. And you mentioned research. I mean, we're sort of only at the first phase of the research that we need right now. There will be so much more. Do you feel like the demand on your researchers is going to go up so much more? Because we don't know about COVID-19 and they are primed to be the ones to find out what this really is and how we can prevent it from happening again. Well, you're so right, Megan, and um, I particularly appreciate your comments because, uh, frankly, in some sectors, people think that research, research in academic institutions is an intellectual activity, uh, idle curiosity. That's hardly the case. Some of it may seem very fundamental. That's what we call basic research. But if we're to get ourselves out of the dilemma we find ourselves in now and prevent future dilemmas where we're caught short, basic research, applied research is critical. Mm -hmm. Talking a little bit on the financial front in a different way, you have spent many years mentoring students and now you'll have a new class of graduates that are now going out into one of the worst job markets we've seen since the Great Depression. What are some of the things that you're talking to them about and telling them as they go out into this world that feels really uncertain right now? Well, uh, certainly we all hope, and I think with good reason believe, that a great deal of the disruption is temporary. Mm -hmm. uh, and to the extent we have produced educated graduates. My belief is, even if there may be a rocky start, they will ultimately find their way. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many jobs that were going begging in Maryland before all of this happened, mm -hmm. particularly in areas like IT, like cybersecurity, like healthcare. Those needs will reemerge. And beyond that, I think that our citizens will value our higher education system because on the flip side, yes, I think we've all seen the predictions. There may be some industries and occupations that on the other side of this pandemic will be dislocated, that there will be different needs in the job market. And that's where higher education comes in. For those, and I'm not rooting for this to happen, but for those who find themselves with less to come back to, or hopefully not, but nothing to come back to in terms of their previous occupation, 
that's where higher education becomes such an important platform. I don't love these terms, but they're used commonly and they're real. Upskilling, learning more than you previously knew, or reskilling, learning something new. Our uh, higher education institutions offer that opportunity as we get out of this dilemma. Do you also feel like students now going into the workforce are a lot more flexible? Because even when I graduated, you know, 15 years ago, people were staying in one career or they had maybe one or two careers. But now students have, they're going into the workforce are maybe more prepared for the fact that they're going to have several iterations of what that career looks like. And maybe they are a little bit more prepared for learning and doing new things and moving through their career in a very different way than maybe someone who went into the workforce 20 years ago is. Well, I think that's characteristic of my, if I may say it, in an admirable way of your generation. And um, uh, it's all to the good. You know, we talk about skills. I just did. But what a university, a higher education also produces is somebody that is capable of that flexibility. Somebody who has the skills to speak well, to write well, to learn something new, to be analytical. Mm -hmm. All of that is part of higher education. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I think what you're also alluding to is that the person coming out of a higher ed institution now, Mm -hmm. I find has a greater commitment to this concept of lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. You've come out with a certain body of knowledge, a certain set of skills. That'll take you a ways, but you've got to keep learning. Mm -hmm. There's another group of graduates I want to talk about that are graduating now and going into the medical field, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Um, It's a time of unprecedented need in the medical field. What are your thoughts and your words to them as they go from school into the front lines of something we haven't really seen in our lifetimes before? Well, first of all, uh, and I think you're alluding to this, my greatest admiration for our currently graduating nurses, Mm -hmm. currently graduating physicians, social workers, dentists, so many of them voluntarily have said, you know, I'm done with my requirements. If the mm-hmm. professional board will allow, I'm this fight right now. And I think about our nursing students, so many of whom, with the permission of uh, our nursing board here in Maryland, who are finishing early and coming into the workforce. That's the nature of students who prepare in the helping professions, mm-hmm. healthcare, social work, et cetera. I mean, it's a worn out expression, but these are people who, by virtue of the profession they've chosen, they run two problems. Uh, They don't run away from them. And that's uh, what we're seeing now. Uh, What we particularly need to do, as long as we're talking about opportunities in healthcare and healthcare students, one of the things that was important before COVID-19 is even more important now, is that we do everything we can to attract K-12 students to this kind of education. Uh, We don't have a sufficiently diversified healthcare workforce. Mm -hmm. And why is that important? 
we all know that based on the data we have, uh, that here is another scourge, uh, COVID-19, uh, that disproportionately affects minority communities. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole variety of healthcare inequities that re- require research. And it's arguably the case that the people that are going to be most devoted to solving those problems are people who get educated to healthcare and healthcare research mm-hmm. from those communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an effort that the USM is making, and uh, it's never been more important. Having a hard time with homeschool? The Pratt Library has you covered. Access free databases with your library card for all ages and subjects. Your child can also chat online live with a professional tutor. The Pratt Library is always here for you. Check it out at prattlibrary.org. What are some of those first steps that you do make to try and encourage the students that you're hoping to go into these fields and come to USM? Well, I've probably given myself an opening uh, to talk about a program that uh, I was fortunate enough to help and get going uh, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, Mm -hmm. Uh, before I came over to being the chancellor. uh, One of the programs that's very visible there is a program called the UMB Cure Program. This is a program that identifies students from West Baltimore in the sixth grade and uh, hangs on to them for dear life through high school, preparing them and encouraging them in STEM fields and showing them the opportunities in healthcare in particular, Mm -hmm. and how they can absolutely be a part of it. Uh, The point uh, that I would make, Megan, is that if we are going to capture, in the best sense of that word, the interest of young people in our communities, whether it's in healthcare or law or IT, and I'm speaking as a pediatrician, you have to grab kids young. If you wait to attract them to opportunities at the end of high school or early in college, it works to some degree, Mm -hmm. but the pool is larger if you catch the imagination of these children and give these children hope when they are children, when they're in the fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Have you been able to see that program grow and see those children that were impacted in that fourth, fifth, and sixth grade now going into the University of Baltimore and going into these fields? Well, regrettably, we're too early in it. Mm-hmm. You're asking the right question. What is the <laughs> well, efficacy of programs here. like that? We've done that uh, with programs uh, in other fields, with math, et cetera, where you can see these students in our undergraduate programs, for example, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, mm-hmm. students in Montgomery County, from Montgomery College and from the public schools in Montgomery County going to our campus at Shady Grove. Uh, in healthcare and in the program I referenced, we're not quite there yet because the oldest of these students are still high schoolers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an exciting thing to look forward to, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And um, I often say I'll be in a rocking chair by the time <laughs> one of these kids that I know walks across a stage, let's say, at a medical school or nursing graduation. I'm hoping I'm still around in the rocking chair, but you have to start somewhere and you have to stay with it. 
That's great. I want to take a little bit of a look um, towards the near future at the fall. What are you guys doing to sort of plan for whether students come back in the fall? What looks different on campuses if students are coming back in the fall? Well, I wish I knew all of the answers. Mm -hmm. And in order to get those answers, we've stood up a return to campus advisory group, which takes the best of our expertise from around our system. We try to huddle together, plan together, and then diffuse out best practices to the individual campuses, all of which are different one from the other in making their plans. Look, I'm hopeful that there will be on-campus activities in the fall in our institutions. Uh, It will probably look different in the sense that I'm assuming we're still going to need to socially distance. So the uh, introduction to psychology or sociology class that you and I remember, Megan, uh, with three or 400 students (laughs) in a big lecture hall. Yeah, probably can't be that way. We're going to have to think through how we can teach those courses and do the things that we need to do to keep people safe and healthy. I'm making this up as I go along, but this is what we're thinking about. Maybe a lot of that kind of teaching needs to be online. On the other hand, the lab parts of that course, if there is a lab part, or some of the upper division courses. Maybe we need to take courses that take 30 students and usually sit them around the table close to each other. Maybe that needs to go into a larger venue. Maybe we need to use our facilities much more close to 24-7 than Monday through Friday from 8 to 5. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to think about that. What about our dorms? Can we have a couple of people in a room or are we going to need to have single rooms? All of these things are being worked out, obviously, starting with the principle of it's got to be safe and compliant. Mm-hmm. What do you say to um, some students that, you know, there's a lot of anxiety right now. What do you say to students that are maybe worried about coming back before there's a vaccine? Obviously, there is a lot of thought and planning that's going into it. Well, to the extent that we're planning, we are going to lay out for students and their parents who are making a determination, what steps we're taking to continue with life while keeping safety as the uh, overriding principle. I think, frankly, that uh, there are students from Maryland who in the past would have gone out of state, who because of current conditions uh, may see or may be more comforted by Mm -hmm. the wisdom of staying closer to home. We spend a lot of time paying attention to affordability with regard to our institutions in Maryland. Students and their families, for all the reasons we're aware of, are worried about paying for things, about finances. I think there's a lot of reason to believe that if we plan well and offer things the right way, there are many students who will actually find comfort in the approaches we take staying close to home. So we talk about the short term. Now in the long term, what do you think could be the more long-lasting impacts of this pandemic on higher education? Well, one aspect that I alluded to earlier relates to an even greater interest on the part of what we now call the non-traditional learner. You know, most of us, we graduate, those of us who have had the good fortune to have a higher education, Uh, We graduated from high school and we went off to college. Nowadays, 
we still have that traditional student. I think that person will always be there wanting to come to campus as a young adult, but there will be an increasing number of students who are in the workforce already, Mm -hmm. uh, who may be married, who may have children, who now need an opportunity because of the pandemic to do something different Mm -hmm. or to do something that requires additional education and training. And we're preparing our institutions to make sure that we serve that portion of the population well. Let's say it's the folks from 25 to 44 years of age Mm -hmm. who need to get that kind of education, particularly driven now by the consequences of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a major focus of ours in, in our institutions. Yeah, and in some ways, I think this has shined a light on how distance learning is a possibility for some people who maybe thought it wasn't, who are now doing Zoom happy hours with their families across the country, and that's something they'd never heard of three months ago. Well, you know, um, I wish this had never happened. You wish it had never happened. We all wish it had never happened Mm -hmm. because it has taken a tremendous human toll. Mm -hmm. But given the fact that it has, it would be a shame if we didn't march on from all of the things we've all had to get used to quickly. Believe me, two months ago, I had no idea what a Zoom call was. (laughs) Me neither. Well, Dr. Jay Perman, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Megan. Thank you for having me. The Pratt eLibrary never closes. Log on to prattlibrary.org and get an e-card. You'll have access to thousands of ebooks, audiobooks, streaming TV, movies, and more. You can even attend virtual programs on the Pratt social media channels. More information at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.